Thank you for uh, joining the I Love South Orange County podcast and the ESBC Podcast Network. And we have an outstanding podcast. And the reason it's so phenomenal today is because not only do we have learned people, people who are smart, we are going to give you information you are not going to get anywhere else in this political environment, polarized political environment that we're living in right now. Not even Fox News, OEN, nobody are going to be able to discuss the topics we're going to discuss today thoroughly. We're going to tackle police reform and we're going to tackle gun ownership and Second Amendment rights. For me personally, uh, Second Amendment rights are just as important as First Amendment rights. They're vital to our country. They're vital to us being sovereign. And they're vital for us to, like Ronald Reagan used to say, get the government off our backs. Literally, if we have to, right? So we have uh, Dr. Steve Albright. Did I pronounce your last name correct? Yep. 23-year veteran of... Uh, the San Diego Police Force. Now he's a trainer. He's a trainer for police departments, an expert in uh, library safety. And I always ask this question, and I asked Deborah this question the last before. Everybody on the podcast, who the heck are you, and why the hell should we listen to anything you have to say? Start with me first. Yes, sir. Well, I have 15 years with the police department, so thanks for giving me extra extra years. <laughs> Uh, I've written 23 books, so that's where you got that 23 ah, from. I got it. Um, I'm in, I was in San Diego for the police department for 15 years. I worked there as a full-time officer, a domestic violence investigator, and a reserve sergeant. I've written um, six books on officer safety and tactics. I wrote the first book in the country on workplace violence back in 1994. Wow. That was my primary training subject. I wrote um, three books on guns and on concealed carry, that concealed carry lifestyle which I believe for folks that have gone through the process of getting a concealed carry permit, it's important to protect our rights and to know how to tactically protect ourselves and to legally protect ourselves. So th that's what those books are about. And so my primary role is I teach training programs for cities and counties and law enforcement around the country. That's awesome, that's awesome. And it's gonna be an amazing discussion today. And another reason is because we have Deborah Pauly well, I met uh, in 2015, where uh, we got a corrupt city councilman by the name of Andrew Hamilton recalled. We were outspent 10 to 1. Now, Deborah uh, ran for the Orange County Central Committee, and the guy that beat her out, but I don't know how many of those, but he spent $300,000. <laughs> How much money did you spend on that campaign, Deborah? Zero. Actually, you know, I've been in the governing body of the Republican Party of Orange County for about 15 years. Uh, almost as soon as I got on, they figured out what I was about. I'm like Trump blonde. Blonde Trump without the money, so you can't be as brassy uh, with, without that backing. But um, when they figured that out, they started trying to run me off almost right away. I've had entire hit campaigns run against me. I tried right. to get off the central committee. This last, right. I put a thing out called Polly's uh, Picks, 
every election cycle where I have vetted candidates for every office personally. Right. Uh, that includes the Central Committee, which is now every four years. And I give them my top six people in our right. district. And I did what I normally did. Recommended this young guy, new guy. Young by young, I mean under 40, which is young uh, right. committee terms. And said he would be a breath of fresh air, which I believe to be true. And I heavily promoted him. Uh, and he beat me by like 200 votes. It was like, and, and pe people like, this is terrible. I'm like, no, I don't feel bad about it at all. You know, and I know they're excited. The only thing that's bad is you have to have, uh, you have to be on the central committee an elected member or to have standing in order to speak. And um, we need that, we need those voices. But uh, besides that, I have some understanding of some of the issues that the doctors will speak about because I was also an elected member of the Villa Park City Council. So I'm familiar with, you know. And you had a very successful uh, career in the military as well. Well, I, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not where I learned to shoot. My dad was a good dad. Good for him. Awesome, awesome. And then we'll, we'll get into uh, women in gun ownership. Because, you know, I live in a very interesting family where both my wife and my mother-in-law both carry uh, concealed weapons in their purse. And unfortunately, uh, they both have had to use it. My wife had to use it in a home invasion. And my mother-in-law had to use it as well. Where, when she was approached in Tampa and we're very blessed that she was able to defend herself and take care of her situation because we would not have her around if she did not know how to use the weapon in her purse and be able to access it uh, so we can have her around every Thanksgiving and Christmas. So this is something, this is a topic that is very personal to me and very, very important. But in these times of the pandemic and COVID-19, uh, we're in the middle of a recession and we're in the middle of a law enforcement uh, crisis. And, uh, Dr. Steve, I've been listening to Dr. Steve for about four years. Very, very intelligent man. And if I wanted somebody to break something like this down, it would be somebody like Dr. Steve. And we talked beforehand about, because uh, you, you're a very thoughtful man. What, and we'll get your opinion as well, Deborah. What do you guys feel are common, you know, because you hear, you know, defund the police and that's, just lunacy, right? That's just uh, irrational, impractical uh, policies that will never happen. But what are some practical, common sense reforms that we should enact, Dr. Steve? Well, you know, if we talk about defunding the police, it's sort of ironic because what we're looking for is not what happened in Minneapolis as, as something we want to continue anywhere else. We want right. those types of officers to be removed from duty. We don't want people in that job that can harm other folks like we saw in Minneapolis. But right. when we say defund the police, it's ironic because we're taking away money that should be used for recruiting and for training. And so what we're seeing around the country is because the job has a negative connotation to it, it's not well paid in a lot of, right. of uh, cities. I mean, some cops make thirty-six dollars to $40,000 a year in some, some cities in the United States, and that's a lot for some, some police agencies. I mean, in California, you can make over $100,000 a year as a cop with overtime, but that's not true across the country. And as a result, 
we don't always get the best candidates. We don't always get a lot of college graduates. Sometimes we get a lot of folks from the military. It's kind of a default job when they get out of the military, and that's fine. Right. But we want to be able to bring in the best of the best for that job. When you look at law enforcement as a recruiting hiring ratio, it's about 100 to 1. In most large police agencies in the United States, they, they interview, test, put through the physical abilities test, the medical, the psychological test, and the polygraph, about 100 candidates to get to the one that they hire. So, the, I mean, that ratio is enormous when you look at the number of people that are trying to fill an academy with 25 or 30 people. So the cost of bringing folks into that job is expensive. And so if we say, let's cut, you know, as in Los Angeles, let's cut $175 million from the police budget as Garcetti wants to do. It's ironic because we're trying to say, let's improve the professionalism of the, of the job. Let's improve how we recruit and bring the best and brightest into our, our profession. But, but cutting the, the funding to do that says, okay, we don't have the best equipment. We won't be able to get the best officers. It's, it's ironic how that's their first thought. Yeah, no, it's crazy. It's crazy. And it's something I would like to, because I think you're a, a, a great example of this, Deborah, that if when, when people don't do research in an election, right? Plato said it, you, you know, thousands of years ago, that you get people that are less than. And from what you've seen of city council people in Orange County that are bought and paid for by developers, or do these people have the intellectual capital when there are negotiations with the sheriff's department to be able to come up with solutions that benefits the police department and the people? You know, that's a really great point. We have a lot of people and the most local level is really where the, you know, where the rubber hits the road. That's where it matters the most. That's the first line right. of the people. That's where a lot of budgeting issues are, you know, decided. And, and quite often we have people elected that have been put in place by special interest groups that are driving a particular agenda, has nothing to do with the greater good or public policy in, in general, nothing to do with public policy. They don't even understand what they really are supposed to be doing there as right. far as setting that policy and looking beyond the end of their nose. I have a backer that wants this kind of thing to pass. I'm gonna make sure it passes. They're not thinking, what's it gonna look like five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? This entire defund movement is an overreaction to one thing that happened. Actually, it's them taking that one thing that happened to drive right. an agenda. And there are several different agendas that are happening here. And this is all getting down to what politics is all about. This is what politics is about. It's competing groups that are competing for dollars, competing for resources, competing for um, a policy that's gonna benefit them, period. And that's what politics is. So. Part of this defund movement, at least what I see happening in Minneapolis, uh, and I'm going to get a little bit on the edge here, which you know I tend to do. Fine. Yeah, I'm I'm the owner of the po podcast, and I've known both of you guys for four or five years. You can say a hundred percent of anything you would like to say on this podcast. Yeah, I'm thankful for that opportunity. But what you're looking for in what you're looking at in Minneapolis is a high concentration of Muslims and a large number of Somali Muslims that have been moved into that community. Look at the Democrat congressional representative there, Elon Omar. She is one of the most radical, left-leaning, radical Islamists in Congress right. from that area. So they right. are actually, if they can defund the existing law enforcement, which is what they want to do, they want to dismantle it. You defund it, you dismantle it. They want to replace it with something else. And there are pockets, so you 
see, they would create, they would call them no-go zones. That means that our law enforcement that are, are, that are backing our laws or our constitution are, don't go into that zone because it is not safe for them to do so and they make that clear and what they're going to then impose would be not constitutional law, but Sharia law. And I'll just speak okay. what's happening in Seattle. That Antifa uh, jihadist connection is very real. I'm be done with that. How's that? Right. No. And people should do their research. They should type in Sharia law in Irvine, California, of all places. Yeah. And uh, our, not our, but very close neighbor, city councilman, Farah Khan. I call her Khan Khan. But let me know your thoughts. And I talked to Dr. Steve, and it's along these lines of citizen review boards. Well, we have ad hoc committees, like we have a traffic commission and so forth to mitigate or be a buffer between the public and the, and the law enforcement. I like the idea of citizen review boards, as long as they stay in their lane and sort of not over their skis, so to speak. Right. I've known in San Diego, some of the members of the citizen review board for the police department in San Diego, lawyers, uh, a lot of them, and people that have a background in, in education and law and counseling and things like that, useful, except when they see it as a stepping stone to another political office. And then there's grandstanding and there's things right. that are saying, I'm using this as a platform to get to an assembly seat or to a city council seat or to a, even a you know, state senator seat or something like that. And then the other part is, as much as we would like to think that they have an, a, you know, across the board objectivity, oftentimes they get caught up in their own biases. They get caught up in their own sort of issues about certain things that the police do. Sure, agenda. They come into this with an agenda. I want to be on that. And then the other thing I think is useful when I've talked to them is when they go on ride-alongs and we, we put them in a cop car for five or six or 10 hours and they see how stressful that job is and they see that these guys bounce and these ladies bounce from call to call to call and the stress of those types of encounters with people. When we take people that are hostile to the police as a, as a political movement and we right. send them through something called FATS, which is Firearms Training Simulator. They go these shoot, no shoot drills where they have a, you know, a plastic gun, they shoot at these computer screens where there's a, a movie running and they come out of there shaken. They come out of there exhausted. They come out of there going, I never realized that those types of situations even existed for the cops. So, you know, I, I'm not always defending law enforcement when they screw up, I, I call them when they screw up. But the value of citizen review boards is to say, look, can we help set policy for the, the police chief? Can we help set policy for the city council? Can we enforce consequences for cops that need to be fired or disciplined effectively? But oftentimes that's, that's the secondary goal, not the primary goal. Absolutely. And, and this, this type of topic is the reason why somebody like Deborah Pauly provides so much more value on the Orange County Board of Supervisors than a guy like Don Wagner, who <laughs> is focused on getting campaign contributions so he can run for governor. So what are your thoughts, right? You're on the Board of Supervisors, which probably should have been. What, what are your thoughts on a, like a citizen review board that Dr. Steve uh, described? Well, the only area where a citizen review board would have any jurisdiction would be with regard to the Orange County Sheriff's Department, because that's right. what they, they show. Um, you know, of course, once they do it, will it end up being something that um, then trickles down and all municipalities feel like they have to do it. You know, uh, there are a lot of Villa Park, a city where I was a, a councilwoman, has, is a contract city, was at that time and remains so. 
So does that mean that we would have then people, representatives from the municipalities? But I think Dr. Albrecht really hit it on the head when he was talking about it being a political stepping stone for many people uh, that they would uh, overstep their bounds once they got in place. So when something like that is there, it never goes away. And right. then there would be, at the county level, there would be an amount of money that would have to be put in place to support it. Where would that money come from? Would that come from existing, you know, uh, uh, law enforcement budgets? That's exactly the opposite of what we'd want. And once they get there, are they going to be- yeah, a Black Lives Matter donations, right? <laughs> <laughs> People are free, actually, people are free to make donations to government without right. having to go through the tax process if they want to do it and it can be accepted. So, right. so is it going to be a toothless tiger that does nothing but makes people feel good? Is it going to be driving an agenda? Is it going to have a real uh, a advisory capacity? There are so many questions. I've seen us place, you know, these kinds of committees in, in place. Uh, right. One had to do with oversight on the ethics committee, the F, and that was they do nothing. And right. then you have to have an entire administrative staff to support these people. Are they going to be paid per, per, per diem meeting? That happens an awful lot. And then, you know, are they, I just don't see that as the answer, particularly since you would have to question what their expert, their levels of expertise would be. How are those decisions made about who gets appointed? Generally, they're politically driven. So I have a problem with that. Right. You know, just to give us sort of a sideways connection to all this, one of the things that we see when people are upset with law enforcement is they want to get rid of the sheriff's department if it's a contract city. So you'll see right. council members or mayors, they're, they're upset. There'll be, a, there'll be a sheriff shooting or some use of force incident. They'll say, well, we need to get rid of the sheriffs. You know, we should start the conversation about having our own police department. Well, if we use right. San Diego, for an example, one of the only places that ever had their own PD that ever thought about going back to it was Imperial Beach. That's the last San Diego city before you cross into, into Mexico. So Imperial Beach had their own PD, and then they went to the sheriffs where they are now. But every once in a while, someone will say, we need our own police department. And then when they figure out, and I think the city of Del Mar has done the same thing, which is about a 1.2 mile city, Del Mar, California, uh, wants to get out of the sheriff's contract. And then they go and put it out and say, oh my God, you know how much money it would cost for us to start our own right. PD? And all the things that sheriffs brings, like homicide and crime lab and helicopter and search and rescue. So you look at these agencies and they say, well, we're just going to break free from the sheriff and do our own thing. And then they realize they can't afford it. Even if you have mutual aid understandings, you know, memorandums of understanding, have, being a contract city, if you need it, and there are occasions where you do, it, it can bring all of the forces uh, and all of the resources of the sheriff's department into your municipality. But right now, I see every law enforcement agency being spread very, very thin. Yeah. And... Yeah, no, th th those are great insights. So we're gonna kind of circle into the personal and then we'll come up with solutions and then we'll transition into uh, gun ownership. Uh, I have, I don't know my personality, I have a lot of friends who are in law enforcement. And one thing that has struck me is, and this will be a twofold question, right? Uh, they call them in the South. And I have a good friend, he's the assistant chief of police in Tampa. And he used to always tell me stories about POP, pissed off police, right? And how, how do you kind of bring him down when you're in a situation like that? And then uh, as far as chokeholds, right? Uh, Dr. Steve 
what are your thoughts on that and what are what are what are you you feel are answers and one thing that you had a great point on twitter that makes a lot of sense to me uh i know when i lived in florida there was a lot of action right and uh i got kicked out of the house at 18 so from 18 to 26 i lived in less than the greatest of neighborhoods so i pulled myself up on my own bootstraps and I can live in nicer places. But you made a point of uh, mismanagement in Minnesota in a lot of police departments where uh, police and law enforcement are, are working too many shifts in a row. And when you see so much stuff, you get numb to what's going on and you get numb to what the POPs want. Because it, I think every department has the POP that wants to work two, three shifts and I know that my uh, buddy, Bill, Bill Logan, uh, Tampa, he has, uh, he instituted in the police department, you can't live, you can't live as a patrolman. You work three years and then you have to find another place in the department because you go through too much trauma in Tampa. And him himself, my buddy, Bill Logan, he came out on the scene and two officers were down, dead. And the only thing that saved them was the guy that was trying to shoot him, uh, his gun jammed, right? And he had so much trauma that he went to a desk job. So what are your thoughts, Dr. Steve? Well, you, you bring up a lot there. One is that we look at the impact on anybody, not just cops, but anybody on graveyard shifts. And so I, I talked to cops who work graveyard shifts because of the small size of their department for like two years. I mean, wow. imagine working year after year. And, and oftentimes, a lot of these agencies, uh, you know, go to a 12-hour shift. So you work 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. It's just a brutal schedule. So you mix that with, you know, that's where the most of the problems are sort of between, you know, nine at night and three in the morning in terms of the- so Mom was right. When it gets dark, that's when most of the problems are. Well, it's, you know, everybody starts drinking and drugs and carrying right. on and parties and shootings and whatnot. So, so you know, my philosophy in, in sort of officer retention and morale and, and sort of holistic health is because when you work graveyard, you get depressed. I mean, it's, it's bad times. Is, is to rotate, as you suggested, people need to come out of patrol. I'm, I'm a big believer in changing beats and changing shifts and changing work locations. I mean, we do it in regular jobs where people ro rotate to another office or division right. or facility and say, well, you just need a breath of fresh air. And, and so people working shift work can really get driven down by that, that process. Um, the other part for the, the problem cop, the, the, the pissed off cop is the job is so full of adrenaline it's so full of sort of the need for male and female macho behavior, for lack of a better phrase. Right. You can't show fear in that job. You have to show assertiveness all the time. And so there, there are folks that, that just can't get off the assertiveness, testosterone, gas pedal, male and female, and, and they get themselves into problems that other cops have to pull them out of. And then what we see is because of this concept of not wanting to rat on your brother officer or sister officer, that, that right. cops let stuff slide. They let stuff slide that they should address. And we are getting better in this. I, you know, in the old days, if a cop went to a domestic violence situation involving another cop, that all got covered up. Now the cop gets arrested. The guy that who's the DV or gets arrested. That happens all the time. In the old days, if a cop was pulled over for drunk driving, there was a lot of phone calls and somebody came and picked him up. Now that guy goes to jail and for drunk driving. So we have evolved our thinking by saying there's no more free passes for cops in terms of their illegal criminal behavior but it's really a, a, an onus of responsibility for the culture of the, of the chief's office to say, we police our own. And if we can't police our own, we use things like 
like internal affairs. We use a professional standards unit. We use citizen review boards because we can't allow these types of things to happen where cops cover up for other cops. It's illegal. It's unethical. It's wrong. Yeah. And, and Deborah, what are your thoughts on that? And we're very blessed that we live in Orange County. Uh, so I would think that, and your thoughts too, Dr. Steve, that in a place like Orange County where, I, you know, there isn't as much action, I think it's more important to do what Cuomo said and uh, review backgrounds of cop. Because if you have an over-aggressive cop in Orange County where everything's come down and he has things on his record, that's a big red flag. What are your thoughts? I could be 100% wrong. What do you think, Deborah? Well, first of all, I just have to say, Josh, you're, you and I have the same mother. She said, you know, nothing good happens. I'm like, please let me say, no, nothing good happens after 10 p.m. So you just, <laughs> but I think in Orange County, we're, we are blessed. And part of the reason we're blessed is we, at least for now, and that could change. Right. Um, we're seeing that Orange County is changing. We have a more educated, uh, you know, population. We also have a more civically engaged population and they tend to be more supportive of law and order or rule of law and therefore law enforcement. So I think that, you know, in Huntington Beach, for instance, we saw this when Antifa was coming in and they were going to, they, you know, the cops and the, the cops did a great job of putting the word out on the street or whoever was monitoring these things, right. letting us know when, you know, protests were going to be taking place from city to city to city and about what time and and they stuck out like a sore thumb, even in the COVID-19. Pardon me? They stuck out like a sore thumb, so they were easy to pick out. Right. But, but what happened in Huntington Beach is the people, the citizens came out in mass and stood in front of the you know, shops and the businesses basically as a wall against Antifa when they showed up and in complete absolute support of their law enforcement that was there. So this is where the citizens and law enforcement work together. And part of that is a relational thing. And, and I really absolutely agree with Dr. Albrecht in Orange County, and it might have changed, but it used to be that brand new sheriffs, the first thing they did would, would they, I spent at least a year's rotation longer from what I understand at the jail. Well, if there's going to be anything that's going to skew your vision of the community that you're working in, that's who you're dealing with, you know, already convicted or being held for arraignment kind of, kind of really nice guys or gals, as the case may be. So I, I do think that people need a break and they need to be refreshed and they need to have fresh eyes going into whatever situation they're in. That's not to say that we haven't had some really horrific, and we have had some pretty bad situations in Orange County where we've had law enforcement act in a way that you just don't want. But their frustration, they're only human beings. Right. They are only human beings. And it's difficult. I have a lot of heart for them. I happen to have, a, I always have, I have a lot of cops that are friends too. Um, right. Just because of kind of, I guess, I am, but there's a young family on my street. You know, you could see when all this happened, uh, there was a lot more of his family coming, wanting to be near, you know, uh, wanting to be with his wife and the little, the three little daughters more, you know, before he'd go to work. You know, it was just a lot of, yeah, I just don't know how to put it, you know, am, am I, it's going to be a rough night. Let me put it that way. We know that. And, and will I be home tomorrow morning? I hope so. Right. I sure hope so. So Josh, let me just bring you back to something that some of you may have heard about. 
in, in a lot of cities in the United States, they have something called EIIS, Early Identification Intervention System. It was originally created by the Department of Justice, and it was created by a, a professor who said, we need a database oversight for cop misconduct, and the way we'll, we'll figure out that it's misconduct is we will look at the totality of their work over a span of time, including things which seem like sort of harmless, like failing to go to court shows up on the database, failing a department shoot shows up on the database, uh, the number of police equipment and accidents they get into. So what they discovered was, and we did this in San Diego with the PD, that program still exists today, Los Angeles Sheriff's LAPD has it as well. Some other larger cities have it. I'm not sure how many in Orange County, but the EIIS system is a database that gets updated pretty regularly to say, here's all the things that, that we look at as risk factors for cops. For example, um, calls involving homicide or violence to a child. And, and there would be certain people that overrepresent. They may go to five of those calls in a year and somebody else doesn't go to any. What we see is that people work what we would call above the line. And above the line is they have been exposed to trauma or they've been involved in use of force uh, incidents or uh, resisting arrest situations or, or um, use of force with firearms. We keep track of all this stuff now. That was a big thing that the unions couldn't get over. It's like, well, you're micromanaging or a big brother. No, we keep track of that stuff now. What we look at is when those people overrepresent, it's a very small number of the total number of officers, but those people right. need to be pulled out of the field. They need to be talked to. They need to be sent to a therapeutic environment if necessary. If you look at the guy in Minneapolis, you know, right. he has 14 use of force complaints and four shootings. I mean, where's the oversight? Where's the, where's the look at this guy's career over a span of time going, we got a problem here? Yeah. Uh, that that absolutely jumped out at me as I was listening to their chief of police services at his press conference this past week. A couple of things surprised me. First of all, he was black. I thought we had a problem where it was only white or black whites uh, on blacks, uh, and that's what sparked all of this. So that surprised me. But he also said, you know, they had a system in place. You know, he had several uh, what you would consider to be flag that that should have been identified and right. he, they didn't do anything about it he dropped through the crap so you could crack so if you don't you can have the best system in place but if you don't have the right people monitoring it and following through and administering that and that is up then also to the city council members to provide the oversight that should be in place so if they think they have a systemic problem all the democrats and the blacks that are actually on that city council that's on them and that's on them but i do know this and it is true, when you try to call some things out uh, that you think to be, be corrected, you will be targeted. Right. So, yes. The citizens have to support, the citizens have to support when either their elected officials or their law enforcement or their chief of police services, their administrative folks are trying to do the right thing. The citizens, we've lost some kind of uh, civic engagement uh, and a responsibility that the citizens have. It can't be a government of the people, by the people, and for the people if the people are not paying any attention. So that's, I think, where you come in, Josh, and programs like this, uh, where you're really getting down, really getting down to the ground on what's really happening. So I appreciate what you do. Absolutely, Aristotle said that it's you. It's the public does not engage in politics and in their government. They're going to get people lesser than them. And on our Tuesday podcast, uh, Greg Wolf, he owns a brokerage firm. He made a great point that if you don't involve yourself in politics, politics will involve itself in you. 
Good quote. You know, and I like, as we transition to gun ownership, this is what bothers me. And I'd like to hear you guys. We'll go ladies first this time. And it's, I feel that, and I felt it, first time it felt hard was reading a uh, column by Robert Novak, if you remember him. And he was saying how uh, we're the frog in water and it's slowly the heat are, we're there's slowly our rights are being taken away, which leads us to our second amendment rights. What do you think, Deborah? Oh, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Our constitutional rights, all of them, not just the second amendment, have been eroded slowly. Part of the problem is people don't recognize what those rights are. And you know, when you throw a frog, as you say, in a cold pot, they don't recognize that you're just turning the heat up. You know, California is, we're, we're excelling at trying to dismantle Second Amendment rights here. Uh, and, and quite frankly, as do most liberal or Democrat uh, right. controlled uh, states or cities. That's just a fact. I don't right. know why they feel that way, but they do. Uh, and so, you know, when, when these kinds of things are happening, uh, because it's, they elected those people, it must be, it must be what, what the people want. In some, in some instances, it may be that. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the point of your, where you were trying to lead me with this whole situation about our Second Amendment. Yeah, no, whatever you, you, because I feel that this is what I, this is my fear, right? It helped me, right? And, and they always say that if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. So this podcast to me is, <laughs> is so fantabulous. And I learned from all the podcasts, both of you guys are 10 times smarter than me. So when this whole COVID-19 stay-at-home order came about, the first thing that came to me was that the Second Amendment is the only buffer we have, the only right we have that stops us from being uh, either far left or far right, being victims to an, an authoritarian government. Right. Well, you know, the first thing that came to my mind when this whole thing first started and why I was willing to take a step back is that biological warfare is a very real thing. And right. when it was emanating from Wuhan, China, and China ha is not, will not, and never has been our friend, right. I thought, well, you know, we've already, we're, are we going to be heading into another situation? But once that was over, it, the COVID thing didn't, didn't um, of course, the government absolutely overreached. Right. You know, the data started coming in, the way the data was presented to everyone was highly skewed. You know, when you say, oh my gosh, we've had 4,000 people identified, yet there are 14 million people in the state. So let's get a grip on reality. And at, at, the, at the county level, it's even been less. Uh, and the whole idea was that we needed to flatten the curve, okay. If you look at the number of beds that are in Orange County hospitals, there are six, almost 6,000 beds in Orange County hospitals. At no point during the entire run of this crisis, this global pandemic, have we had more than 300 people in any of the beds. Right. I understand that we've been bringing folks in. So yeah, the second amendment became very concerning to me when I started seeing rioting in the streets. That's when I started thinking, well, police cannot possibly be everywhere. And with the way California has been, for sure, um, they've been chipping away very, very slowly and meticulously at our Second Amendment rights. There's nothing wrong with doing background checks. We don't want crazy people getting weapons. But, you know, if you're looking at what happens, it, it happening in uh, Seattle, 
those in Atipa, they've got ARs. They, they're, 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 they're all up there. I'm sure they passed their background check. You know, right. so but it, this time when I went to get ammo, and I did go get some ammo, uh, they, they wanted, you know, they never had checked me before. It was like, I need ammo, I need some range ammo, I need some self-defense ammo, I need some supplies, get out, get out. This time, you know, we did a whole checking of me, looking in the computer, checking in, you know, all, all kinds of things that we hadn't done before. Part of that are new rules that the state of California has put in place. If there was ever a time that people need to be able to defend themselves, it would be now. Uh, and particularly, you know, I, I, I hate to play the, the gender card, but I'm gonna, because me, <laughs> me, and, and I'm pretty tough, I'm strong, I live, right. I wouldn't mess with you, Deborah, to be honest, <laughs> <laughs> I live big weight for a girl, for sure, for a girl, you know, right. but I still have no desire to get in hand-to-hand -hand combat with, with someone, and certainly if they're armed, I want to be right. armed as well, I, I will talk about this, you know, I dropped off my dog, at the groomer, who's been very quiet. I'm very proud of my dog. He's been quiet. And thought I would just pop into the local, you know, gun shop, get some range ammo, because I was going to spend some time out at the range and, and some self-defense and just a couple of little things that I wanted and needed. It was 9.30. I thought, well, this is, I'm here now. So I went ahead and pulled off. There was already a line. They don't open until 10. Wow. And, whoa, uh, what's going on here? I've never faced that situation before. So you have a lot of time to talk to people in the line. And as I'm in this line, it just kept growing and growing and growing. By the time the doors opened, you know, it was four times the length of what it was when I showed up at 930. There was a woman a couple ahead of me. I tended to talk to the women because they were. Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, she was uh, older and everything's relative. I don't really know how old she was, but she was not a, she was not a spring chicken. And she, was, she was picking up her first ever weapon. Wow, woman out in you know out working a professional world, you know lives in an Orange County city. Her husband was there with her. He already was the kind of guy that was already armed, and and so we were talking about good training facilities. Two people back from me was a guy, rocket scientist, literally a rocket scientist. Oh wow! Uh, the two guys in front of the two in front of me that we were talking, they were both conservative. The the gentleman, the rocket scientist, actually was a, a Republican, a, a conservative. His wife. This is a mixed marriage. I don't know how they do it. But <laughs> she's a Democrat, very liberal, always, always had been anti-guns. Right. Not anymore. And she works in a hospital. She's a nurse. She works in a hospital. She's like, I, you know, things are squirrely. And so they were there, you know, in line to get her first ever weapon. So, you know, that that's happening. I went out and trained uh, in a, in a very nice range, outdoor range. I like to shoot outdoors when the weather's nice. And there was some great training that was going on, about four hours of training. And while you're, one group is shooting and the other group is reloading, you have a lot of opportunity to talk and the groups are remixing quite often, quite a bit. Um, there was one young mother. She is a physical therapist. She goes out on the road. She's got two young daughters, but her husband is out a lot. And she lives in a, one of the nicer uh, Orange County, you know, cities. So you shouldn't be afraid, you know, Santa Ana, you know, you know, you're in the heart of what, you know, there's always stuff going right. on. Oh, absolutely. It wasn't that at all. She just felt uncomfortable and like she wouldn't be able to take care of herself and her small children. And so she, this is her second time out on the range and she was applying for CCW because she is out by herself. And, you know, I think that, 
you know, as women, um, women, a lot of women are not uh, comfortable with weapons. And that's why I think they're afraid of weapons. I think once they see what type of training those who have weapons have, yeah. that they're probably safer than anyone else. You know, right. we, we treat every weapon like it's loaded. We never put our finger on the trigger unless we, we never point the barrel at something unless we intend to shoot. We don't put our finger right. on the trigger and we know what's behind our target. So these are, this is training that, that people who own weapons receive and should receive. And so I think as more people are exposed and more people recognize, you know, this is, this is a slippery slope and things are pretty squirrely right now. You better be prepared to take care of yourself, your household, and quite frankly, uh, help the others on your street who also need to do that. Right. It doesn't matter, you know, what community you are in and how safe you feel, you should never have a false sense of security. So what are your thoughts, Dr. Steve, on the whole Second Amendment? and then women, female uh, gun ownership. And you've written four books on the subject, right? And you've trained women. So you have a yes. lot of experience in this. I mean, I, I wrote three books on, on concealed carry and Albrecht on guns. There's volume one, two, and three. They're on, on Amazon. And I put a lot of thought into those books about sort of the tactical considerations for keeping yourself safe in, in the streets. If we look at the United States and we say there are nine states that don't have an, a requirement for a CCW permit. Wow. Um, you know, what I'm looking for and what I was hopeful that the Trump administration may do at some point in time, the bill is, is sort of circling the drain. It's H.R. 38. Okay. H.R. 38 is sort of like the, the same type of conversation we have with barbers and cosmetologists and, and people that have professional licenses that go from state to state. H.R. 38 says if you have a concealed weapons permit in California, it should be good in all 50 states. If you have one in Florida. Yeah, it's one of those things that probably shouldn't have happened a long time ago that hasn't happened. Right. So it's not, not that's, that bill keeps dying in committee, although it's, it's got bipartisan support, not a lot of Democrats, but it's got some bipartisan support, a lot of right. Republicans support it. So, so that, that would make a huge difference to me if, if everybody's CCW permit around the United States was recognized as valid in all 50 states. I have the benefit from being retired from the PD that I have a, a, an all states card, which I, I go back and qualify every year to, to get at the range. So I feel like, you know, as long as we have a mandate in place where people are, are having oversight as to qualifications and range skill and things like that. The other part about, about guns uh, for women, which, which always I'm interested in, is I tell cops in training programs, ask if there is a gun in the car. And they only typically ask men. And I always say, you know, women carry guns too. And in fact, women who have been crime victims, especially sexual assault victims and, and domestic violence victims, definitely carry guns. And so that's a question you have to ask as well. And so, you know, I write for a magazine called Concealed Carry. And as part of the U.S. Concealed Carry Association, of which I belong to, I have their insurance policy, which I, I believe in. Uh, NRA has a similar insurance policy as well. And, and the USCCA magazine, Concealed Carry, has a whole section, the last 40 pages or so of the magazine, just for women. And, and it talks about all their needs in terms of holsters and training and, and what are the best guns for their hand size and things like that. And it's awesome. So if you look at, at you know, this idea that sort of men have had their time with uh, handgun magazines and things like that. There's a whole space for women to get involved in, in, in target shooting and protective shooting, self-defense shooting as well. And purses, we have nice carry pur concealed carry purses. You just unzip and pull it out. I wish Gucci would make one, but they don't. Well, that's 2000 bucks you didn't have to spend. So there you go. <laughs> but you're right, you know, I was looking at, um, you know, some some hacks on how to clean your weapon more effectively. And one of the things that was on the, um, 
one of the hacks was to use an old uh, shaving cream brush to apply your lubricant so you don't put too much on. And I thought, I wonder if an old blush brush would work. And you know what? It does. That's true. <laughs> so Josh, you look at... at I'm going to do my own hack. <laughs> absolutely. Josh, you look at, at what we, I hear now from my firearms training friends is that their phones are ringing off the hook. People want firearms training. I mean, we're, we're not saying that you need to take the responsibility of the job of a police officer. What we need is some defer, de defense deterrent that gets you till the cops get there. And, right. you know, I talk to people who live in rural communities and the sheriff is 45 minutes to an hour away. That's driving 100 miles an hour. So, so the idea that, that you know, we're, we're not training this doomsday prepper kind of a lifestyle. What we're saying is we have a, an opportunity to protect ourselves until the police get there and the police aren't always going to be around. Absolutely. Absolutely. Man, I love this podcast. We had an awesome flow, a ton of information people are not getting anywhere else, and we have solutions. Any other, as we close, any other solutions? Uh, I mean, that HR 48. 38. I cannot, yeah, I cannot believe there isn't 100% bipartisan uh, support because the Democratic Party has been looking for ways to track and having a nationwide tracking system of somebody who has a, a license to carry a weapon would facilitate that. Yeah, I think what the, the Republican version is, at least in the bill that I've read, is it's not going to involve a lot of government oversight. It's basically going to be the stroke of a pen that says the same thing. If you have a professional license in one state, cosmetology, barbering, whatever right. it happens to be, you don't have to take the exam again. In, in another state, you know, it's X number of hours in California and, and times six in Texas, something like that ridiculous. So we just say across the state line. So you can read articles from people that say, you know, when I, when I drove through a non-gun friendly state like Illinois, you know, I had to have my gun in my, my trunk locked up and unloaded because, you know, I could be, get arrested. New Jersey is the same way, other places. So what we're trying to create is this reciprocity that says, good for one state, good for all 50. Right, because those are major fines you can never get out of. You could go into a rabbit hole of debt paying off a fine in Illinois. Any solutions you think as far as the Second Amendment and uh, gun ownership, Deborah? Solutions as far well, you know, it's really a matter of, again, citizen engagement. I talk right. about this all the time, you know, pushing, pushing the envelope. You know, you and I were talking about a, you know, a case in 2008 with the District of Columbia where this, um, uh, it was actually a law enforcement officer in the D.C., uh, area. He was a special uh, police officer, Dick Heller, and he wanted to be able to uh, use a firearm. You know, he was denied a license. This is a police officer, denied right. a license to keep a firearm in his home for self-defense. And part of the left's uh, argument always is that this, when the Second Amendment was written, it was, you know, a different time and it was for the use of militia and all of that is now absolutely obsolete. But as you muskets. Yeah, yes, it was about muskets. Um, yeah. But the Second Amendment was really, you, you do look at the time of, of when it was written. It's Scalia's uh, take on it, and he's the one that wrote the holding on that. Right. The Second Amendment protects an individual right to possess a firearm unconnected with service in the militia and to use that arm for traditionally lawful purposes such as self-defense within the home. And the District of Columbia's ban, as it was put in place, that it required that the firearm be uh, stored in the home in an inoperative position, you know, uh, inoperative condition 
would actually violate that right. It was interesting that it was a police officer that decided to, to take them to task on this. Um, but citizens have to take them to task, have to take their local elected officials to task on this. And, you know, it really is a bipartisan issue. I'm, I'm actually surprised at how many uh, people, I don't know a lot of Democrats, I'll be honest, but that, that are actually very much pro-Second Amendment for their own self-defense. But um, uh, the, the entire purpose of the Second Amendment comes off of where we were in history. We were not fighting, uh, you know, an internal, we were fighting a dictatorial overly overreach government that had gotten out of control. Right. That's what, that's, that's what we just came out of. Right. And so, you know, if you look at this now, is it possible for the government or your local government to run amok? I think so. I sure am seeing it right now. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and they're not even taking care of business. You know, right. if they were taking care of business, what's going on in Seattle, where you've got rogue Antifa, you know, occupying six square blocks, I think it is, right. that would not be happening. Right. It would it would be something that you deal with in a very, you know, direct fashion. And if somebody gets hurt, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't have done what you did. Shouldn't have. And they shouldn't be doing it. Uh, and they're pushing an envelope. And we're not, we're being a little bit too tolerant, I think. What are your thoughts, Dr. Stephen? We'll close with this. Because part of my fear, right, with, uh, with the COVID-19 and shelter in place and Second Amendment being the buffer between authoritarian is what are you guys' thoughts on when cities have gun buyback programs? I, I think it's like the worst thing ever. And then final thoughts, whatever thoughts. And, and it's interesting. Uh, the first time Dr. Steve came on the podcast, the SBC podcast, we had 1,200 downloads that month. Now we're up to 20,000 downloads a month, Dr. Steve. Nice. <laughs> yeah, brother. You got a lot to deal with that. So thank you very much. So a, a couple of things. One, the gun buyback issue for me, if it gets guns out of the house that people don't want their kids to be around, I, I see, you know, grandma's taking old rifles and stuff. I, I'm, I'm for that. I, I think it's okay. Um, but, you know, I did, a, I did a debate many years ago with the head of the ACLU in San Diego, a nice lady. And, you know, I, I finished with her. My last comment with her was the last comment I'll make with you folks, which is the Constitution is not a suicide note. Right. And what we mean by that is we're not supposed to give up all of our rights because we weren't there when it was created so many years ago. It's right. an evolving document, but it also is carved in stone for a reason. It's not a suicide. Definitely document. stealing that one. That's right. Take take that and, and run with it. So, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not I'm not saying that everybody needs guns. I'm saying the people that should have uh, guns that are are uh, licensed to carry them and have gone through the training programs and and the things that counties require. Uh, I, I just think that the, in terms of the government, there are other things they should be focusing on besides this issue. There's a comment that's frequently made by the NRA, which I, I have not been able to, to dispute, which is no mass shooter, school, college, university, or workplace has ever been a member of the NRA. All right. Yeah. 100%, 100%. Deborah, final thoughts? My only thought on this is I don't have a problem with a gun back program as long as the individuals are freely relinquishing their weapons and there is nothing in place that could evolve into forcing them to relinquish their weapons. That's the problem. Absolutely. Well, uh, where can folks reach you guys if they want more information, man? You have to. It's almost like you have a moral obligation to share your intellect with people. 
We'll have them all in the episode notes. So Dr. Steve, let us know. Yeah, I'm at uh, drstevealbrecht.com. That's uh, A-L-B-R-E-C-H-T.com. If you go to Amazon, uh, Kindle, all my gun books are there, uh, volumes one through three. Happy to talk to anybody about uh, what we've been discussing tonight. And Deborah, nice to meet you. Nice meeting you too, Dr. Albrecht. I enjoyed it very much. I did do a brief, you know, uh, review of your book that's up on Amazon just to see who I was talking with and whether I wanted to come on the program. <laughs> Josh, what are you getting me into now? Uh, you know, right now, I don't have a website right now because I'm not running for anything, but I'm always available on Facebook. I have both my public um, figure and also my personal Facebook. It's always open to the public. I use it as a communications tool and of course Twitter as well. And um, I keep my cell phone available to people. Uh, I don't answer if I don't know who you are, but if you leave a message and I think it's important information or there's something that I can do that I think is critical, to, because I think we're in a critical place right now. I think we're in, the of, we're in a constitutional crisis is what we're in right now. This is a time where, you know, this is my belief is all of this is tied to the November election and the fear that Trump will be reelected. Up until recently, we have had a very peaceful passage of power in this country from one to the duly elected individual um, going forward. What I'm seeing right now is, uh, well, I saw it once when I witnessed a coup d'etat in person in the Philippines. It's the same. Wow. <laughs> like, Wow, have we devolved that much? I think we that have- That sounds like a book to me too, yeah. Wow. Walking to write a book. Maybe I say that now. <laughs> thank right, you. Well, thank you. No, no, this has been fascinating. We'd love to do it again. And I always close with Winston Churchill. We got through World War II. Uh, you make a living from your labor, but you make a life from what you give. Thank you for listening to the I Love South Orange County podcast and the ESBC podcast network. I'm the best there is.